0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to another episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I am your co-host, Dan Newman. I am joined, as always... By my brother and co-host andrew newman andrew how are you doing today
1: uh i'm doing all right in the general sense um in the uh sort of sports sense not as well but uh you know overall can't complain this is uh the last podcast episode i will be recording from uh, my current apartment in poughkeepsie new york Uh, within the next couple of weeks i'll be moving uh to shelton connecticut um just about an hour and 10 an hour and 15 minutes away from here so uh a little bittersweet as i take in this view from my desk for for the last time from a podcast standpoint uh when i say view i mean sort of out the window and things like that i don't mean staring in the monitor
0: <laughs> yeah and this is um this is episode uh I don't know where we're somewhere in the eighties uh, or no, I think we're in the seventies, low sixties, yeah. maybe sixties, low sixties, high seventies. And you've probably done every episode from, uh, from that location with maybe with the exception of I, I think you did a couple from your phone and you did one live from my house on Christmas, but this has basically been yeah. your recording location for most of the seventy or so episodes.
1: Yep. It, it absolutely has been so.
0: And this is also something a little different because you and I are it's just two of us tonight, which our last few have been uh, have been author interviews or something like that. And we got a couple more episodes with guests and that type of thing coming up. So it's a little uh little change of pace uh, back to back to the routine here for you and me tonight.
1: Yeah, and ironically, that probably means it will go longer. Uh, Usually when there's other people, we have to be aware of their schedules and just the common conventions of how long these things are supposed to take. So with just you and I, I got a feeling we might be uh, a little on the longer side tonight.
0: We do tend to do that. And uh, sort of to to kind of uh, go behind the curtain a little bit, we are recording this on May 10th at about 730, hopefully get it up uh, and you'll all be listening to it within a couple of weeks. But the major thing that is going on uh, for Andrew and I both tonight is that it is game five of the Knicks Heat Series at Madison Square Garden. Knicks down 3-1. And as this uh, recording session goes on, so too will the game. Maybe we'll sneak in a comment about it here or there, but um, I think we're both sort of expecting this to be the last game of the Knicks uh, 2023 season. So um, just to provide a little context, and so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go back 50 years to talk about what was uh, very much a successful Knicks season. It was their last NBA championship, uh, victory over the Lakers in five games, just about exactly 50 years ago this week.
1: not just about exactly tonight, exactly 50 years ago tonight. The Knicks uh, finished the Lakers May 10th, 1973. Uh, the Knicks won their second championship and to this date, uh, last championship.
0: And we've done an episode or two in the past about the 90s Knicks and those which are sort of our glory days. Um, and that was when we... Um, We interviewed uh, the author of the book Knicks of the 90s, which is a great book. It's one of our first episodes, and I think maybe our first author interview. So so check that one out. Uh, Like I said, it's one of our really early ones. Those were our glory days, but this era, this late 60s, early 70s era, was really as a franchise, the glory days of the New York Knicks. So. Thought it would be appropriate to travel back in time 50 years and talk a little bit about the '72 '73 New York Knickerbockers.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know the the Knicks have won two championships ever. Uh, they won in 1970, sort of the very famous team. The Willis Reed comes out. Willis Reed comes out the, out of the tunnel before Game Seven against the Lakers, and the the Knicks win the championship. And then two years later in 72, they get back to the finals and lose to the Lakers. And then uh, 72, 73 is, you know, again, you don't know it at the time, but is really the end of that run, the end of that team. I mean, they had a few more years, but certainly they wouldn't get back to another finals, let alone win another championship, you know, really a a sort of brief. And there's people who will tell you that, you know, for how brief it was, those teams do to a lot of people who... Follow the NBA and and the history of that era of the NBA. Really, those Knicks teams kind of hold a special place to a lot of people who don't otherwise have any sort of predisposition or, you know, care about the Knicks in general.
0: They stand out really in two ways. They stand out among New York sports fans, like you said. And I think, sort of to your point, you have a lot of people who maybe don't consider themselves. Nick fans, basketball fans, NBA fans, but those teams kind of, you know, th- th- there's certain teams when you go through sports that are in the pantheon, whether it's the mantle year Yankees, whether it's the Sims, Parcells, LTE Giants, Namath and the Jets, you know, the Rangers in 94. If you're sort of telling the story of New York sports, especially New York sports in the lifetime of anybody who's still around today. So like, let's say post 60, maybe post 1960, that Nick team, it has sort of this special place. There's a book by um, Harvey Ariton called when the was later also made into a 30 for 30 on ESPN called when the garden was eaten. And it's this idea of, the Knicks is sort of the epitome of not only a New York team but also a basketball team, and that was my second point: is that sort of basketball purists kind of view those Knicks as kind of the like the attainment of something perfect as far as on court chemistry. They were a team who they had no one superstar on the '73 team; every single guy in the starting lineup is in the hall of fame. They were a team that built themselves on passing on sort of selfless basketball. And they've achieved this almost kind of mythic status in the mind of basketball people.
1: And I think this is the first team, but there's this, you know, there's this, Thing and and if you, I'm sure it's come up on this podcast before. I know it's come up to most people I've talked to in in you know life at this point. But there's this sort of mythic thing about a certain era in New York sports, and it unfairly gets. It was not a calendar year. It was not a 12 month period. But you had the Jets win in January of '69. You had the Miracle Mets in October of '69, and then you had the Knicks in June of '70. So You know, it was an 18, 19 month period, but all three of those teams won championships and it kind of represented a new era or what they thought was a new era in New York sports because the Knicks were the traditional New York team, but they'd never won before. The Jets were the upstarts in the city. The Giants had fallen on really hard times. The Jets in the AFL had won this championship with Joe Namath. And then the Mets, who had been horrible for the first seven years they existed come out of nowhere and win a championship at a time that the Yankees 40 year run of dominance has fallen by the wayside. So there's sort of that mythical, you know, very short period in New York where three teams won championships, and it was the first championship for all of those teams and all last in a couple of seasons. All They're three all being- won.
0: And it was and I say this as a joke, but also, you know, there was all three teams wore orange. You know, it was new. It was not the sort of the stolid blue and white of the Yankees and of the Giants. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of a new era. And it was also a new era in everything from television to journalism to all those types of things. So the subject here is the 70. Did you have something to say?
1: Well, I was just going to say, so we're talking about the 73 team, and I I mentioned the 70 team. Can you kind of walk us through the difference in the roster, the makeup of the team between the 70 and 73 team? Because there's a few key differences, things that happened, but I think it's important to sort of not take for granted that everybody's going to know that because we know that
0: sure so I think the best way to do that is just to kind of give like a brief hip history very brief or at least very brief by hello old sports standards the franchise of basketball <laughs> so, so, James he had he had a bunch of guys who were uh football players but they needed something to do in the winter um so
1: and no. he, he had peach baskets that he really he needed to wear it Um, that's right. James David was a genius in terms of the fact that he basically created a sport that still exists today out of whole cloth. If we're gonna have any notes on him, though, cut the hole out of the bottom of the peach (laughs) pits.
0: But anyway, go go ahead. We should do an episode on him sometime. Do you think we can get him? (laughs) I do know people in Massachusetts, so. Knicks are an original team uh, in the NBA when it comes into existence in the mid-1940s. They play in three consecutive NBA finals in the 1950s, early 50s. I believe it's 51, 52, and 53. And they lose all of those. I believe all three to George Mikan's Lakers, at least two. A third might be to a different team, but I believe that it's at least two of the three are to Mikan's Lakers. They then go into sort of this uh, this down period where they're not very good in the 50s and the early 60s. We actually talked a little bit about the Knicks of the early 60s when we did our episode about Tom Gola a couple years ago because Tom Gola was on a couple of those uh, or at least one of those Knicks teams of the early 60s. Um, they start to turn things around throughout the 1960s. One of the big moves that they make is the hiring of Red Holzman, who had been a player himself in with the Rochester Royals in the 1950s. And in fact, had won a 50, world
1: 51 Chief. by the 51 was the Royals beat the Knicks. And then 52 and 53, they were Minneapolis.
0: And Red Holzman was on that 1951 team. Um, <laughs> So they bring in Holzman in 1967. They had gradually been bringing in guys. Um, They drafted, and I don't have the years for all of this, but they drafted Clyde Frazier. Um, They drafted uh, Bill Bradley out of Princeton, who then became a Rhodes Scholar and missed a couple of years before finally joining the team. Uh, I think it's like 67 is when Bradley joins the Knicks. They have two centers, they have Willis Reed and they have Walt Bellamy. And they're kind of like the original Twin Towers but they don't fit well together. They're always sort of trying to play the center position at the same time and it doesn't work. So in the 68-69 season, two really important things happen for the future of the Knicks. They move from the third madison square garden which was there had been four madison square gardens this the first two were actually in madison square in new york and then the third one i believe was a little higher okay the third one was was all the the way was was um at 49th and 50th streets um and 8th avenue in uh in manhattan so that's the furthest north the furthest uptown than any madison square garden had been and that was the home of the Knicks they the, when you hear people refer to the old garden they're not talking about the one from the nineteenth century where they just had circuses and bicycle races they're talking about the Although, thir- by the
1: way if so there was there was three gardens before that mm-hmm. the old garden opened in the twenties the first two the first garden was really like a garden for the most part <laughs> i mean it was i'm serious it was an in it, it was you know it was an Sort of like, oh, a place where people can come take the air and listen to music and things like that.
0: I, I don't quote me on this, but I think I read that there were apartments at the first one. Like yeah, People well, lived there. you never
1: heard about it? the guy who designed Madison Square Garden. And this is not really a sports story at all. But the guy who the architect of the original garden was murdered on the roof of that garden. Now, it, of course, involves somebody's mistress who was, I think, 14 and all this. And it's all neither here nor there, really. But um, for the moment, it's a very interesting story. But, um, yes.
0: So they move in 68, late 68, from the old garden, the third garden, 15 blocks south to what is known as the current day Madison square garden, which in and of itself is now an over 50 year old building. And then they make a big trade with the Detroit Pistons for Dave DeBuscher. They trade Walt Bellamy, their other center for Dave DeBuscher, who is a power forward. He'd actually been the player coach of the Pistons prior to coming to New York. And He had for a time been a major league baseball player. I believe he was a pitcher in the White Sox organization before devoting himself full time to basketball. So that trade is does really two things for them. It allows Willis Reed, who's the captain of the team to become the center, to become the undisputed leader of the team. And it also gives them that power forward position that they really, really need. And so they go into the 69, 70 season. The starting lineup is Walt Frazier, Clyde Frazier, at point guard. They got Dick Barnett who had been previously with the Lakers and was a jump shooter. They called him fallback baby Dick Barnett. Cause he would shoot this jump shot where he would kick up his legs behind him and yell fallback baby. And that was sort of his catchphrase. Two forwards were Bill Bradley, Dave DeBuscher, And then the center was Willis Reed, the Knicks. After losing to the eventual champion Celtics in the playoffs in the Eastern Conference in 69, in 70, they go to the finals. They beat the Lakers in seven. Willis Reed has his courageous comeback. Clyde Frazier has a game for the ages in game seven of the 70 NBA finals. I believe he has 36 points and like 18 assists or something like that. It's just a crazy game. One of the all-time great games in NBA finals history. So they win the title in 70. But they're starting to get a little old. They're starting to get a little injured. And the 70 team had a group of guys off the bench that were known as the Minutemen who were sort of um, the guys who came in and spelled the veteran players when they would need a break. And that was guys like, Dave Stallworth and Mike Riordan and uh Kazzy Russell who had been a starter before um before I think it was I think he was a starter before DeBusher came to the team or maybe it was Bradley but Russell had been with the team some time Russell had been a Cassie Russell had been a college star in um at Michigan and sort of sort of a a strong personality and so that was the bench but they didn't really have with the possible maybe exception of a Kazi Russell, they didn't have any, uh, any stars off of the bench, but by 1971, they, so, so, so in 70, 71, they go to, they have a good season. They win 52 games. They were 50, 60 and 22 in the 70 season, 71. They're not quite as good. They're 52 and 30, but they win the division. They lose in the Eastern Conference uh, semis to the Bullets, who are um, uh, event who had uh, won the champion. I'm sorry, who had not won the championship, who had been their rival. Kind of, they'd played them the year before in the finals. The Knicks-Bullets rivalry of the early 70s was something that was a really big deal, and it was punctuated by this rivalry between Clyde Frazier and Earl Monroe, the two All Star starting guards and you know the the big scorers for each team but then they go into the 71-72 season and they're a little old they're a little stale and they realize that there are some changes they had that they have to make and I want to talk a little bit about both these guys because the two guys they trade for are two more hall of famers two guys who are part of the NBA 50 greatest players, the NBA 75 greatest players. And that's Earl Monroe from Baltimore, from the bullets and Jerry Lucas, who had been with the Cincinnati Royals for many, many years.
1: So just to close a couple of things uh, that I was checking um, in that game seven of the 70 finals, Frazier had 36 points and 19 assists. So I think you were pretty much on the money. You might've said 19. You might've said uh, 34 points, but right there, Dave DeBuscher was a pitcher. He did pitch not only in the White Sox organization, but he uh, pitched for them for uh in pieces of 1962 and 1963 his career one loss record is three and four he threw one complete game shutout with the 62 white Sox, uh 63 white Sox. excuse me um and the bradley story is an interesting one because so bradley was drafted in 65 uh it was the last year of the nba's territorial draft have you ever heard this
0: yeah, that was that was a big deal back in the 50s where basically a team had the rights to a guy who either lived or went to college or whatever nearby.
1: But did you hear how the Knicks had the rights to him? No. One mile closer to Princeton than the Philadelphia 76ers. At least according to this article, I mean, that's the kind of thing that could be a wives tale, but, um, that's what this thing says here is that he was, uh, he ended up with the Knicks instead of the Sixers because he was one mile closer to the Knicks, uh, than the Sixers. Um, while you're about to talk about Earl Monroe, I'll just say he'd been on the bullets. He was in a contract dispute with them. They'd actually refused after the third game of the season to play any more games And he demanded a trade to either the 76ers where he's from. He's actually one of his nicknames was Jesus of North Philadelphia. Um, I don't know exactly. I got to look up which high school he went to because I went to college in North Philadelphia, Uh, the Bulls or the Lakers were the three teams. And then the Bullets had suspended him on October 22nd of 71. Um, While uh, the Bullets, I guess the the. Monroe contended that they weren't paying him the money he was owed even before he held out. The Bullets have a different version of the story, but that's the situation in early in the 71-72 season for Earl Monroe.
0: And the one who is the most opposed to bringing in Monroe is Frazier. Because they had had, it wasn't necessarily a fighting relationship, but they had had a, a rivalry During these playoff series, when the Knicks played against the Bullets every year, and when they make the trade for Monroe, um, Frazier actually thinks that that's the next step towards them getting rid of him because he and in fact, there's rumors out there that the Knicks are going to trade Frazier to the Rockets for Elvin Hayes, who's the Hall of Famer with the Houston Rockets, who then later goes on a year or so later, ends up with the Bullets for years. (laughs) But that um, that's sort of what Frazier is worried is going to happen. So but Monroe, who had really been a scorer for all of his Bullets career, which I think was only like three or four years, it's not as if he'd been with them Forever, and when we did our all-time NBA starting fives a couple years ago, Andrew uh, chastised me for thinking that Monroe's career was mostly with the Bullets and not with the Knicks. He was more of a Nick than a Bullet. Um, but, and this is what Frazier says: he says he was shocked. He thought that they needed a big man. He said that was probably the most tumultuous time in my career as a Nick because now everyone's saying that Frazier's out. He's going to get traded. They can't keep both of them and all that. So it was a tough time for me. And Monroe, to his credit, subordinates his ego and his game and his on-court approach, recognizing that he doesn't have to do all the things that he had once done in Baltimore. He doesn't have to do those things in New York. And so he joins the Knicks. And for those couple of years it's one of the greatest backcourts of all time.
1: Yeah. And the, uh, I guess it was a pretty quick too. He, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to put yourself in the position of using today's lens. It's very hard to understand the concept because, you know, we, we live in the era of super teams where guys willingly sort of orchestrate their ways to play on the same team and even before that, the last era, you know, you want to say the '90s and and 2000, you know, 2000s, meaning the first decade of the uh, new millennium. Even before the era of the super team, free agency was a part of life. Guys moved teams. Guys, you know, more readily accepted new players, or you know, remained friends with guys who they had played with who went elsewhere. Things like that. In this era especially when it's a team you're playing every year in the playoffs and multiple times a year in the regular season, it's almost like we won one. Why do we want one of them? Why do we want a guy from there to come here? So it went well. And it's almost like a foregone. When you look back at it, you're like, well, of course they got along. They're both superstars. And it's like, no, it's, it was not a, you know, it was not a, automatic thing even back then that Earl Monroe would have come in and just been like, no, this is Clyde's team. I'll adapt my style to this team instead of, well, I'm going to do my thing. They brought me here for a reason.
0: So that's that's Earl. And then the other <laughs> guy that they bring in is Jerry Lucas, who had been a, a six-time all-star with the Cincinnati Royals of the 60s. He had been sort of part of a 1-2 tandem, 1-2 punch with Oscar Robertson on those Cincinnati Royal teams and I think they might have made they I think this 64 team no, I never made a finals I guess. They made the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics in 64, but it doesn't look like that team went to M- any other NBA finals, but they were sort of a powerhouse of the of the uh, the Eastern Conference in the 60s. And so they acquire Jerry Lucas from... Actually, he'd been playing for a couple years with the San Francisco Warriors. They acquire him from the San Francisco Warriors for Cassie Russell, who we talked about a little bit earlier. And he is a little bit of a veteran. He's over 30 by the time they trade for him. He'd been Rookie of the Year in 63, 64 He had been MVP, the all-star game a year later, he was an Ohio state guy and he was teammates at Ohio state with John Havlicek. And I want to say, I think it's possible. I'm not a hundred percent. I think Bobby Knight might've been on that team with those guys as well. So some really good Ohio state teams of the early sixties that he was on and he is a power forward. In sort of our modern parlance, uh, Jerry Lucas is a power forward, but he's very much, he's almost like you'd think maybe like a Nowitzki type with a little less height. He could shoot. In fact, Red Holzman would say later that a lot of the shots that Jerry Lucas shot that were twos in his day and age would have been three-pointers, so Jerry Lucas might have actually even been a more dangerous player in the days of the game with the three-point line. He is a very very interesting man, Jerry Lucas. <laughs> he might be one of the smartest guys ever to play in the NBA. He has a memory. He he famously used to memorize the New York City phone book and recite it back to people. And he I actually just today uh, I was watching a, a video there's one game from the 72-73 series that you can find on YouTube and it's between the Knicks and the the Baltimore Bullets um and it's actually it's really interesting for a couple reasons um and maybe I'll just tell those reasons first of all this game is played in Cole Field House which was the home court of the University of Maryland because the Bullets were having their stadium renovated so they had to play at the University of Maryland and Allen Rose in the game playing for the Knicks and he's not wearing his number fifteen. He's wearing number twenty one, and the announcers explain that the reason why Earl Monroe wearing twenty one in this game is because, for whatever reason, Earl Monroe was laundering his own uniform, and he <laughs> left it in the laundry room of his building in New York, and somebody stole it. <laughs> so he was wearing a number twenty one with um, with um, with no number, no name on it. And the the other thing I would mention about the broadcast of this game that I thought was funny, and again, this is all just a digression, but um, the game is being called by Chris Schenkel, who's a, an ABC broadcaster that some folks might have heard of, and Bill Russell is the color guy. Howard Cosell, apparently, ABC forever used to do this like whole like you know wide world sports type things where it was like a whole afternoon on a Sunday or Saturday of sports program so it was a basketball game between the knicks and the wizards and then there was like something else for like an hour yes. and then i'm sorry bullets bullets what did i say wizards yeah so and then there was something and then the third thing was like a almost like a news magazine type show with howard cosell and it was howard cosell talking about how to fix the problems in amateur athletics <laughs> And if I'll just preface this by Howard Cosell did not always have a great relationship with athletes. He sort of looked down on athletes. He especially looked down on athletes who tried to become broadcasters. And you heard about that. You hear about it like with Bob Euchre, how he had just this like terrible sort of rancor with Bob Euchre. Because Bob Euchre was just a guy who loved baseball and Cosell was, you know, thought he was above it or, I don't think he always got along that great with Don Meredith on Monday Night Football, you know, all this stuff. So anyway, Chris Shankle is reading the promo for this Howard Cosell thing on amateur athletes, and it doesn't last. It's just like a 10 second thing. But Bill Russell in sort of his majestic Bill Russell voice he goes, do you think he ever was an amateur athlete? Just like really, (laughs) and it's like, and there was just there was such contempt for Howard Cosell in Bill Russell's voice, shorn of any context. But you just you have to know that even in 1973, he was probably already getting on the nerves of all these former athletes that were getting into broadcasting.
1: Yeah, Howard Cosell. I. It's enough with Howard Cosell to be honest. It's. I mean, every time I hear, Cle- and I, you know, I'm, I, he's got a cool voice, and he narrated a few cool boxing moments and stuff like that. But yeah, he, he seems like a guy who was pretty quickly, you know, made it very clear that he was lowering himself to call of the results of a baseball game. Uh, you know what I mean? Then don't do it. If you're that much more important than it, don't do it. Go cover the Nixon White House then, and and you know what I mean. We're really
0: digressing here, but I just have to tell What's one story. Gonna-
1: I've just, it's enough for him after all these years.
0: No, no, but I have another story to tell there. Um, Bob Costas told this story. Um, it was like during the World Series, it might have actually even been the 82 World Series that we talked about in our previous episode. But Howard Cosell and Al Michaels were at the hotel after one of the games, and Howard Cosell was in the lobby, and like all the fans and everything were coming up to him. And Cosell goes, There's just nowhere I can get away, go to get away from these throng of people. And Al Michaels just goes, Howard, can I suggest your room? (laughs) (laughs) Go to your hotel room. Anyway, just a digression. The reason I bring that all up is because on the pregame of this. They have this interview with Jerry Lucas and Jerry Lucas was doing a he was preparing and I don't know if this ever actually aired or not. I couldn't find any information on it, but he was preparing for a special that he was going to do on ABC where he did magic for people. And he was going to do it as himself, Jerry Lucas. And then also as his alter ego. Give me a second here. I got to find this. Um, The name of his alter ego
1: and this is Jerry Lucas,'s magic alter ego,
0: yes, was or Is that his name with the letters mixed around that is his name with the letters alphabetized because apparently that was something that was a hobby of his since he was a kid was whenever he would see a word, he would alphabetize all the letters in it in his head. So a really interesting guy. And he ends up playing a lot of center in the 71-72 season because Willis Reed is injured. Willis only plays in 11 games, I think, in 71-72. Lucas is really the starting center. It's become less of a Willis team and more of a Frazier-Monroe-Jerry Lucas team. And so they lose to the Lakers in the 72 finals in I believe that's also a five game series. Yeah. Four to one against the Lakers in the 71, 72 series. So they go into this 72, three 72, 73 season. And it's Frazier and Monroe DeBusher, Bradley Willis still at center. And then off the bench, they have Lucas Dick Barnett is still around at 36 years of age. They've got Henry Bibby, who is the father of future NBA superstar? Uh, so I shouldn't call him a superstar. NBA point guard Mike Bibby. They've got a young guy um, named Dean Meminger, who was uh, Earl Monroe's roommate and a backup guard on the team. And then uh, one other individual uh, off of the bench who I have not yet mentioned, and who was actually on the sixty nine seventy team, but he was injured for the entire year. Do you know to whom I refer? Phil Jackson. Correct. Jackson, yes. who was sort of a scrappy, uh, lanky, forward type, had actually been ready to come back from... Had been ready to come back from his injury. He, he had a season-long injury in the sixty nine seventy season. He'd been ready to come back from the... From his injury in late in the nineteen seventy season, he was physically ready, but he said that mentally he wasn't really there, so he needed um he needed needed some time to prepare so he he's he's part of the team in nineteen seventy but just um just a just an observer doesn't play at all and I think he actually ends up taking a lot of pictures I think he said yeah he, he took a late a photographer, photographer yeah. And apparently also, and I found this out in my research, Jackson was actually a a frequent uh, trade target request where other owners would call up. I guess because they've got Bradley and DeBusher and Lucas, they would call up asking to trade for Phil Jackson. And Red Holzman, he thought Jackson was too valuable. He just never, um, never was willing to trade with him. So he is another key part of this team going into the 72-73 season. So. I guess
1: we can start to dive into a little bit of the season unless you had anything else about sort of the construction of the the season of the team, right? No, nope, I think we're good to go. Yeah. So one thing I did want to mention, it's not Nick related, but they loom large is we should talk just a little. We've, we've mentioned the Lakers. They're the perennial, you know, West Coast team there. Obviously, who was it in 71? Was that the was it the Bucks that were in the East, the Bucks were in the West in 71, right? And they played the Bullets.
0: Correct. And then three years later, they were back in the east. It was very the Milwaukee Bucks in their conference in the early 70s is very strange. But yeah, and I think the Bulls were in the Western Conference then, too. But short answer to your question is yes.
1: There's some years where you look at the standings and the Rockets and the Mavericks are in the east or the Spurs are in the east. And then the Hawks are in the west. It's interesting. But anyway, what I wanted to talk about was. You know, you, you know, the Lakers are are pretty consistent. We'll obviously get to them when we when we get to the end of this. But the Celtics, so, you know, a big story. The Celtics had obviously won the whatever, eight, you know, eight in a row, 11 titles. That ends in 68-69. Russell is uh, replaced by Tommy Heinsohn as the coach. They missed the playoffs for two years, 69-70 and 70-71. They missed the playoffs. They did make a big jump in 70-71. And by 71 72, they're really back in good shape. They went 56 and 26. They actually finished in first in that division. I'm guessing they're the first. They were first overall and they lost to the Knicks in the Eastern Conference Finals in 71 72. So while it's not the Celtics of the 60s, they are back to being a formidable contender in the East along with the Bucks, along with the bullets. Although I guess the well not by then probably not the bullets, but um, you know, the, the Celtics are, are a force to be reckoned with once again at this point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the in fact they are on an 18 game winning streak, or I, I think it's 18 games. I, they are on a significant winning streak that the Knicks stopped them with coming back from, uh, an eighteen point. Let me get let me get the exact here, so I'm not just um
1: yeah. So that and that's stumbling what I was through it. it. And that's what I was going to talk about was so the the seventy two seventy three season starts, and you know there's one game, and I want I want to get a little bit of the um just sort of the the nuts and bolts of of this beginning of the season down. But so they start out, and you know they're the Knicks are off to a really good start. They're at one point they win eight in a row. They're ten and one. And going into this game in November against the Bucks, November is 72. They are, it's Saturday, November 18th. The Knicks have gotten off to a 16 and three start. So the Knicks are off to a very, very good start going into this game uh, against the Bucks at Madison Square Garden. And this is sort of the famous comeback that
0: the Knicks have in this game. Correct. They're down 18 with six minutes left.
1: And 18 with six minutes left now is a pretty heavy thing to come back to. And then let alone back then with uh, no three point line with, you know, the game just being a little bit. I know they scored a lot of points back then, but making up 18 against a good team, the defending or you know, one of the team that won the championship just a couple years ago, a team that's got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson coming back on them down 18 in that short an amount of time is if not unprecedented, certainly a tall order.
0: Exactly. But they do it. They score. um, They, they're like I said, they're down 18 with, with six left and they end up, um, they end up winning it. And the, I'm just looking at the the recap here, hold on. 86-79 with um with about 3 minutes left and uh Monroe um scores 22 points, 11 of them during the Knicks 19-point run that gives them an 80 uh 87 to 86 lead with 30 seconds. So do they actually do they go do they score 19 in a row? Yep, they the went, on a,
1: went on a 19 0 run to win the game
0: that's crazy
1: yeah so you know if you look there's there's a few real long win streaks in this season there's not really a point where you can say oh they're in a lot of trouble um you know there's like there's one or two i guess you know couple game losing streaks but By the end of 1972, the calendar year end of 1972, they're 31 and 10, which I guess interestingly also marks the exact halfway point from Thursday, December 28th of 1972 to Tuesday, January 16th of 1973, they go on an 11 game win streak of their own a lot of those games being on the road as well. They go on a a trip to Kansas city, Atlanta, Houston, Seattle, and Phoenix and win all of those games. And the team that actually snaps the streak. And I feel like this is worth mentioning is Friday, January 19th, 1973. I guess that would be the night before Nixon's uh, second inaugural. Um, Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, They lose to the Lakers at the forum, 99 to 85. So that that I believe that was the first time. So they played the Lakers the second game of the year, and the Knicks beat them at the Garden by twenty-five. And then they played them in January out in Los Angeles, and the Lakers snapped an eleven-game winning streak for the Knicks in a rematch of the year before's finals.
0: So they're good, and I you know one of the themes is Willis is hurt, but as the season goes on, Jerry Lucas starts to suffer some of his own injuries. So Willis is starting to play more and more after sort of kind of seeding the, the starting center job to Lucas the year before, as the season goes on, Willis is once again, becoming more and more important to the team.
1: Yeah. And he's by far the, you know, oldest person, oldest guy on the team, or at least the oldest guy on the team who's in the rotation.
0: I believe. Um, Barnett is older. Barnett is, I'm looking at the ages here. Bar, where are the ages? Um, I got him. There we go. So Barnett is 36. And then the next oldest is Willis is actually only 30, but his legs are an old 30. DeBusher is actually older at 32. Lucas is also 32 and then, you know, Clyde Monroe, 27, 28, um, you know, and then some of these, you know, Phil Jackson, 27, but, but Willis, Willis, it'll also the other thing that we should make clear. And I'll talk about this a little bit at the end. Willis is in his second to last season. Willis only has 19 games left in his career after this season. And we'll talk a little bit about that, that at the end. Um, but, so they're a good team they have you know a half a dozen hall of famers seven hall of famers if you want to count phil jackson and they go into the playoffs against the baltimore bullets and they end up winning that series as well um in the first round by a score of four to one so not not an ex- not in a uh, particularly difficult series the next two series about the Celtics uh, against the Celtics and then against the Lakers are probably a lot more material uh, of interest there but maybe we should just uh, talk about this bullet series for a minute or two
1: yeah so just to clean up the regular season the, the Knicks had three all-stars uh, they had Frazier to and Bradley were all all-stars for the Eastern Conference uh, they they End up as the two seed in the um, in the NBA in 1972-73. I'm just trying to pull up the playoff picture for that year just to get the full um, the full uh, picture of it. Uh, 72 NBA, 73 NBA basketball season. Finally, so yeah, the the Knicks finish 57 and 25, which is good for second in the Atlantic Division is good for second in the Eastern Conference and is good for fifth overall in the NBA. However, the Celtics 68 and 14 on the year. So, they are very much back in 1972-73 and if you do the math on 68 and 14, that is not far off the number from, you know, the 96 Bulls and the 16 um Warriors. I yeah, I, I can never remember if it's 15 or 16, but 16 Warriors so ultimately, though, that's enough to get them the number two seed. It's it's a you know there's different iterations of the NBA playoffs in terms of rounds and do teams have buys. This one is pretty easy. The and this like I was saying, the Eastern Conference in this year had the Houston Rockets in it, and the Western Conference had the Milwaukee Bucks, the Chicago Bulls, and the Detroit Pistons. Boston's the one seed, Knicks two, Baltimore three, the Atlanta Hawks are four. And then out west, just for good measure, the Bucks are the one seed, the Lakers two. They finish with the identi- with identical records. The Bulls three and the Golden State Warriors are the four seed. So, yeah, the Knicks, um, they start with the Bullets. It's a best of seven series, um, and they're up three games to nothing in the series uh, before they lose game four. Uh, I'm assuming it would have been in Baltimore and then come back and win game five.
0: That's correct. Not a lot of drama in this series. The bullets, obviously, without all the Pearl, who had been one of their better players before he was traded to the Knicks. By this point, they've gone out and they've acquired the aforementioned Elvin Hayes from the Rockets, and this is his first year with the Rockets. Or I'm sorry, with the Bullets, and he ends up staying with them all the way through their championship team of. 78 and then even for a couple years more before actually returning to the the rockets for the last few years of his career they have what's Unseld, who was named both um both both mvp and rookie of the year in the 68 69 season a couple of ex Knicks that were part of the monroe trade dave stalworth mike Riordan, and there, you know, they're oh, and they got a guy. Uh I'm gonna give you a name. Have you heard of this guy ever? He's who's on this team, a guy by the name of Rich Rinaldi. Was he on the radio at some point? <laughs> <laughs> he was he was from Poughkeepsie. Oh, okay. So growing up, I used to hear his name thrown out there as like the one guy from the area who had ever been to the NBA. Went to college at St. Peter's College, which is
1: at the school that went to the elite eight a few years ago or last year, St. Peter's in Jersey City.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're probably right about that. He only plays four seasons, uh, the first three with the bullets, and then he ends. no, I'm sorry. He played. I actually be curious. I must have just gotten waived two seasons with the bullets and then. His third season partially uh, with the Bullets and then uh, about five games for the New York Nets in the ABA. So anyway, uh, not a factor in this series, obviously, but the Knicks pull away. They beat the, the Bullets in five. The one interesting thing that I found about this was that it was right about with this series that Dancing Harry comes to the Knicks. Dancing Harry was just a guy who danced. And he was a Baltimore area guy and Earl Monroe had met him and uh, at Lenny Moore's restaurant, Lenny Moore, the great wide receiver for the Baltimore cults of the Johnny Unitas eras era. And this is what Earl Monroe said. He said, I first met dancing Barry at Lenny Moore's restaurant in Baltimore. He would play Sly in the family stone on the jukebox and lip sync. And then all of a sudden he started showing up at the civic center, which is where the bullets played he would dance. He would put hexes on the other team. And then when Monroe gets traded to the Bullets in the 71 72 season. The Knicks are in the playoffs and uh, dancing Harry, who lives with his mother, which I guess it should not be surprised that a guy whose entire um, livelihood is just to dance in bars, lives with his mother. He says, I told my mom I was going to the store, but instead I drove up to New York and I ran into Earl Monroe on the street. He I managed to get a couple of tickets uh, to the game and I started dancing at the home games uh, for the Knicks. And uh, but then starting in 73, 74, the Knicks tell him that he's still welcome to come to the game, but he's not Um, he's not going to be allowed to dance anymore. So he moves on to Indiana and dances for them for a few years. But uh, 72, 73. I believe
1: that's what that song that George Michael wrote when he, uh, Careless Whisper, I'm never going to dance again. I believe that was about <laughs>
0: Dancing Barry or whatever you're talking about here. Dancing Harold. The, the the Lakers in the 80s had a dancing barry with a b but this is dancing harry yeah,
1: saying that to pretend i wasn't paying attention and then there is a dancing barry you know <laughs> being a diehard sports fan before like the 90s there were some bizarre fellas <laughs> <laughs> something just didn't have anything to do with sports it would be like oh this guy goes to all the atlanta you know he goes to all the the atlanta hawks games and he just you know throws popcorn up in the air and it's what does that have to do with it where's bright suspenders and nobody knows what his name is and it's like what (laughs) i had some problems Somebody probably should have somebody probably should have you know done some digging into what's going on there that was a lot of god
0: (laughs) so you talked a little bit about this rebuilt celtics team that they go up against in the playoffs they've brought in Cowens, they've brought in uh they've drafted jojo white they've uh john Havlicek is still there most of the guys from the from the 60s teams are gone but they've you know they've got a new nucleus and they still have Havlicek. i just want to see if there's anything else in here and worth and while noting. you're looking at
1: I'll just go. So the Celtics went 68 and 14 that season. They played the Knicks eight times because again, it's a smaller NBA. They're in the same division. They went four and four against each other, which, you know, so the Knicks, no other team who played them that much. Nobody had beaten them that many times, as you would imagine with a 14 loss team. What the Knicks actually, the Celtics won the first, excuse me, the Knicks won the first game in November by three. Then the Celtics won the game after that in December by nine then the Knicks actually won three in a row, all two close games and one 30 point blowout. And then the Celtics won the last three of the. Uh, I mean, was uh So the Knicks won three in a row, then the Celtics finished up with two in a row, a lot of close games, but a couple of blowouts and they split the series. It went win, loss, win, win, or excuse me, loss, win, loss. Win-win-win, loss-loss for the Knicks. So pretty even on on balance, but the Celtics did win the last two games of the regular season in, uh, in March, and they're going to have home court in the Eastern Conference Finals. All
0: right, so why don't we talk a little bit about this series? I think the first thing, uh, there's more that I want to say about the later games. The Knicks, they get blown out in game 1 they lose by 26 points to boston at the boston garden they then return the favor and go uh, tie the series they win by 33 in game 2 against the uh the Celtics 129 to 96 win a close one at the garden in game 3 cool. 98-91 and then game 4 is this what? epic go ahead i'm sorry I do have to
1: correct you because I believe they rotated games.
0: Oh, you're right. They did. I'm looking at this. That's a good point.
1: And it's shock is like, they didn't do it against the bullets. So it's surprising that they did that. I mean, I would have expected them to do that in the fifties, but like the fact that they still rotated games in, in 1973, is a little surprising, but yeah, the, um, the Celtics won game one at the Boston garden big, and then the Knicks won game two at Madison square garden big.
0: That's correct. That's correct. And then game three is back in Boston and the Knicks win that one. 98, 91. And then they go into this game four against the Celtics they are down 16 points going into the fourth quarter. They end up coming back, tying it up, and then going into overtime against the Celtics, tied at the end of one overtime. And then the Knicks end up pulling it out 117 to 110 in game four to go up three to one in the series. And there's there are a few a few things that I want to touch on about this game for because there's a lot of interesting storylines going on here.
1: Sure. Um, just from a, a statistical standpoint, Frazier went for 37 points in 57 minutes. This game go to double overtime.
0: Yep. Double overtime.
1: Double overtime. They, pra- so pra- Frazier played 57 of 58 minutes, had 37 points to 22 for the Knicks as well. Uh, he played 51 minutes for the Celtics, 33 for Dave Cowens, who played 55. Don Nelson with 16 and Jojo White with 34 as well. So those were kind of the uh, the high line scorers.
0: Havlicek is injured for this game. He shows up in street clothes. He doesn't play. And the Knicks end up getting a big contribution in The second overtime from John Giannelli, who is one of the bench players, a guy who he's not necessarily an end of the bench guy, but he's not. He's not by any means one of their stars, he ends up going four for four, he's a rookie four four for four from the field, 10 points. Mm -hmm. So Giannelli
1: is a 22 year old rookie. Uh, Played in 52 games that year and actually hung around the Knicks for another couple of years and played after this. He he was one of the first guys off the bench. You know, I'm looking at the game played 70, 80, 82. um, And then it looks like in 77, he gets traded to Buffalo and then is uh, on Milwaukee for a couple of years. And then Utah before finishing up his career in Italy. So, you know, ended up hanging around the NBA for quite a while. Um, Went to the University of the Pacific. And his nickname, according to this thing, was G-Man.
0: <laughs> so this is how this is from this when the garden was Eden, was Eden book. This is how Gianelli is described. He said he may have been the freest of old Nick spirits, a beach lover who yearned for the West Coast life, who would build a cabin with his wife in the mountains between Yosemite and Tahoe, and play several years in Italy after seven plus uh 7 plus nba seasons cow uh red holsman has a hunch that his length would be more effective you know his size his height against uh dave cowens than what jerry lucas can do and gianelli winds up playing 16 minutes in total hitting all four of his shots and drawing cowens um sixth foul he's clyde Frazier's roommate so clyde says uh, i guess something must have rubbed off on him and uh the Knicks end the game on a steal by Phil Jackson to pull away and win the game uh 117 to 110. And um there's one more thing I want to note about this game unless you have something else. No, go ahead. So there are um there's a lot of anger on the part of the Celtics towards the referees after this game and they feel that the calls have really gone in the Knicks direction and that maybe the NBA is looking they want to see a Knicks Lakers series so um in a shocking shocking development the head coach of the Boston Celtics Tommy Heinsohn Thinks that the refs are being unfair to the Boston Celtics, which I believe was the only time he ever complained about calls against the Celtics in his entire life. He uh, loudly curses. Also, if
1: there's one thing the NBA is frequently known to avoid, it's wanting a series, wanting a series comprised of the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers. That's that's anathema to them. So after the
0: game. Well, Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: I was going to go on a rant and it's irrelevant. God,
0: the, the among other things, the Celtics get a technical foul called because there's a rule at the time that you can't call a timeout in the backcourt in the game's final two minutes. So Don Nelson tries to call a, a timeout and he uh, gets called for a technical foul based on that. Um, after the game, Heinsohn uh, loudly coaches the two referees in front of their dressing rooms. He says, you got to be up 20 points in the fourth quarter to win up here, meaning MSG. We played a super bleep game, and we were only 16 up. That's why we lost 38 to 23 in free throws attempted. Who are they bleeping? He said, 20 points. That's my quote. We deserve to win. Um, Don't put that tape recorder on in here. Get outside. <laughs> And then Red Auerbach uh, says, don't call the Knicks comeback courageous. And he said, we played a great game and deserve to win. So the Celtics, you know,
1: you know know who they are and have always been They're Hulk Hogan in like 1992. (laughs) Strictly in kayfabe in wrestling terms, he's won everything for eight years. He's, he's gotten every break in the book. Anytime he loses, it's the crime of the century. And, Everybody's out to get him. And to the rest of the world, it just looks like whining. That's what the Celtics are for the most part. Then now, whatever is. Oh,
0: go ahead. Sorry. So there's a sports writer in the Boston Globe a day or two after the game says that, quote, the game was being stolen from the Celtics. Believe Johnny most if he told you that. And I figured it was absolutely meaningless under those terms. Why should I care about something that was only a step above burlesque? He says, I would, I could not be so dumb that I cannot see that New York always gets the needed break to get itself back in the ball game. Nothing ever gets in its way. He says he's disillusioned that some of the little boy in him has been taken away. He said, either the NBA actually wants New York or or LA to win or the league has a problem it cannot control in the Madison Square Garden crowd. All I know is that no evenly contested Celtic-Nick game was devoid of officiating problems this year, and that I had to devote two paragraphs to the subject in the Celtics' victory, no less. He says, it really has soured me on basketball, and that gentleman is a sports writer by the name of Bob Ryan.
1: This is a franchise that for decades still wistfully speaks about how they would pull the fire alarm when the Lakers were trying to sleep the night before the finals or that there were spots in their floor that just purposely weren't up to NBA standards and that the locker rooms would wouldn't have heat or hot water in the middle of the Boston winter. This is. And the sports writers carried water for them even back then they they just you know and i like bob ryan and he's a good reporter and but then it's just it it, it's it's nice to know that it was just as noxious back then
0: yeah it's funny because that whole like well the league wants this team to win and doesn't want that team to win i guess i didn't necessarily think that that was such a i also funny (laughs)
1: Because for years it was like, well, it's you know TV ratings or something like. Well, the finals were probably still on like tape delay back then. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. It I wouldn't
0: mean. have been motivated just by TV. Um,
1: you know, but it's yeah, that's just you know that's. And then two months later, I'm sure they wrote their articles about how you know it, it's unfair that we don't win all the time in in baseball or in foot in basketball. And then, you know, it's unfair that we can't even just win one time in in baseball.
0: So the Knicks go into game five up three to one. Uh, According to Willis Reed, quote, we had them by the nuts. They lose game five by a single point. Um, They have a lead. Uh, Paul Silas gets an offensive rebound late in the game and he scores. And uh, Jerry Lucas is um, guarding Silas, which is something of a mismatch, Willis believes. And then they go on a Friday night's game at home and they lose uh, in game six by 10 points to Boston. And now they're going into game seven at the Boston Garden, needing to win to go back to the NBA Finals for the third time in four years. And game six was
1: tied heading into the fourth quarter. This was the game at the garden and the Celtics outscored them 28 to 18 in the fourth quarter and ended up winning the game. They got 26 from Cowens, 25 from Jojo white. The Knicks got 29 from Frazier, 22 from Monroe. But like you mentioned, they're only able to get four points from Willis Reed uh, and really just, you know, At that point, half I mean, truthfully, in any scenario, if you're the team that's coughed up a 3-1 lead, you feel like the other team has all the momentum going into Game 7, let alone now we're going up to the Boston Garden. And I believe that was the, up to that point, no team had ever beaten the Celtics in a Game 7
0: in Boston. Wouldn't surprise me.
1: Yeah, it hadn't happened. It only happened once more at Boston Garden, and then it's happened. A f- it's only happened a couple of times since then, to be honest. Like in the two thousands, like still an impressively small number. But it's only it only had happened. Uh, it happened in this game. I don't think we're giving anything away. And then I believe in '82 in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics, the Celtics beat
0: them in a Game Seven, and those are the only two times it's happened at that at the Boston Garden. So a few things happened before this game. First of all, Ned Irish, who's been the uh, owner of the Knicks for quite some time, comes to practice and choose the team out. Go ahead.
1: I talk about how confusing this all was as a kid to hear this stuff. So there was a Red who was the coach of the Celtics. There was a Red who was the coach of the Knicks. And then the owner of the Knicks is Ned Irish. (laughs) And not the how is Ned Irish, not the code, the owner of the Boston Celtics?
0: But go ahead. You make a fair point. You make a very fair point. So here's, here's what happens. Um, first of all, Ned Irish comes to the, I believe it's in practice. Let me just, yeah, he came to practice, and according to Frazier, told us we were all a bunch of bums. He didn't expect us to do anything in the seventh game. We had a chance to win it in the garden, but we didn't. So that's sort of trying to motivate the team, kind of, you know, challenge them, challenge their ego, that type of thing. The second thing that happens is before the game, I guess the Knicks now feel like the coaches are or the referees rather are going after them. Because Red Holzman finds the referee supervisor, a guy by the name of John Nukatola under the stands. And according to Holzman, he says, I called him every name in the book. I said, all I want is a fair shake. And then we get into the game and it looked like we were getting a fair shake. And I said, good. It's good that I talked to him and got him to understand. And then later Holzman finds out that John Nukatola had his hearing aid off <laughs> and never actually heard anything. Red Holzman says. So they got, <laughs> they got what they viewed as the fair call. Even without any of the, red Holzman's uh lambasting of the referee supervisor and then the third thing is that and you alluded to something like this a minute or two ago Phil Jackson strongly believes that the Celtics are sabotaging the Knicks prior to the game. He says that the hotel was pulled, the fire alarm was pulled at the hotel the night before game seven. And then when they got to the arena, they found out that they had been assigned a new locker room with a low ceiling and an oversized training table. So some of those shenanigans they're already up to in 1973.
1: This oh, they a, were already up. But it was long before 1973.
0: That's a good point. Yeah, our, our back was, was probably the king of those, whether it was doing things with the floor or with the Nets or, or you name it. We don't really need to say much about this game seven. The Knicks really do blow them out of the water. Um, they're down three after a quarter, but then they're up five, and then they really come out strong. They outscore the Celtics by 10. Much like game seven or much like I'm sorry, much like game four had been a chance for one of the reserves to shine in John Giannelli that equally uh, Dean Meminger, who was a young guy on the team, had not been on the 70 team. They put him on Jojo White, the Celtics uh, all star uh, point guard for this game. And Meminger uh, sort of shuts down Jojo White. How many points does White get in this game? jojo white um 22 points which is still you know not bad but it's widely sort of believed that memminger does a really really good job he he basically holzman basically benches Earl Monroe for a big chunk of this game and goes to dean memminger instead and this memminger is he's a tough guy he is let me just i got a quote here about uh, i feel uh,
1: like When they've talked about his head, like he had like a tough life before and after that. I I remember hearing him interviewed in one of the like retrospectives a few years ago and I'm pretty sure he had, you know, he had had some hardships after uh, after his basketball career.
0: Yeah, he had drug issues. That's exactly right. After his career, he had a lot of drug issues. I think he ended up eventually sort of moving past it. But yeah, he and they talk about in that in some of these books about. How Monroe tried to help him even after their playing days. That's exactly right. So Monroe, and I should also mention Monroe's injured. He's got some bone spurs. So that's another reason why Meminger's probably getting some um some minutes. And Holzman's not somebody who usually relies on a lot of rookies and young players, but he really sort of has takes to takes to Dean Memminger especially the way he plays defense and m- Memminger once frustrated Pistol Pete Maravich to the point where Maravich uh used an elbow to Dean Memminger's mouth to uh clear some space uh on in the lane Memminger says I wound up in the dentist chair at 1 a.m. but I went back right after the next guy so he was really a um he was really a defensive specialist really does a good job in in this game seven against Jojo white and this, the Knicks win, they win going away. They win, uh, they win by 16 points. Some of the players say that it's the happiest that they've ever seen red Hulsman in the, in the locker room after this game seven. And then they go to LA to take on the defending champions in the 73 NBA finals.
1: Yeah. And let's I just I'll talk a little about what was going on on the other side of the bracket here uh, very briefly in the 73 playoffs. So I mentioned earlier that the Lakers were the number the Lakers are actually the two seed in the playoffs. They played in the first round. They played the number three seed, the Chicago Bulls, who we mentioned were in that Western Conference at that point. Um, A little bit weird in that this was a seven game series. And all seven games were won by the home team. So the Lakers beat the Bulls in uh, in overtime in game one at the Forum. They win game two. Series goes back to Chicago, and the Bulls win games three and four. Game five, back in L.A., the Lakers win by 20. Bulls win game six in Chicago. And then game seven, it's the Lakers, but it's only the Lakers by five. Um, Wilt Chamberlain in that game five or in that game seven had 28 rebounds uh, to lead all not just rebounders, but he, he had more rebounds than anybody else had points in the game. Well, I guess Norm Van Leer for the bulls had also 28 points, but um, so then they moved on from there and they played the golden state warriors in the, um, in the Western conference finals. So the warriors must've beaten whoever the, team that tied for first that who did i say that was before the tied for first with the with the lakers
0: i don't think you did say
1: well who i'll, I'll i don't want to go all the way but i'll because I'll, I'll lose it because it says here golden state was the number four seed so the lakers win this series fairly easily it was the bucks they, uh, it
0: was kareem's bucks oh that's right yeah, yeah yeah
1: so golden state upsets the bucks in the first round then the lakers some of these games were close actually Most of them were close, but it's still a five-game series. The Lakers win game one by two points. They win game two by 11. They win game three on the road by uh, not close. They win by 56 points, 126 to 70, which I have to imagine is still one of the most (laughs) lopsided playoff scores of all time. It would almost have to be, wouldn't it? Um, Golden State gets game four. You know The leading score for Golden State was in game four in their one win.
0: My guess would be Rick Barry, but it must be something more. Kaz,
1: Kazzy Russell.
0: Kazzy Russell. Uh, there you go.
1: And then in game five, back at the forum, the Lakers wrap it up 128 to 118. So kind of the inverse of the Knicks. The Knicks had a, a pretty easy time in the first round and then a seven game dog fight with the Celtics in the conference finals. The Lakers had probably a much tougher than anticipated series in the first round ra- or in the yeah, in the first round against the Bulls and then a much easier time Against the um, Golden State Warriors, they got not lucky, but they were fortunate in that they were able to avoid having to play Milwaukee in that um, in that in that conference final. So, like you mentioned, the stage is set: uh, Lakers and Knicks for the second year in a row and the third time in four years. Now, the difference this time is it's going to be the Lakers with home court advantage. So, games one and two are going to be in Los Angeles.
0: And the Knicks win- lose Game 1, they go on to win the next four. I, this is a very sort of anticlimactic series. There's The telecast of Game 5 has been found recently. I've never actually mm-hmm. watched it, but you can get it. I don't think it's available on YouTube, but you can get it on DVD or something like that, which is something I'll probably look into doing. Um The Lakers are you know, Elgin Baylor's gone. He'd, he'd retired midway through the previous year. So it's Chamberlain. It's West. This is Chamberlain's last ever, um, last every season, because then he has some issues with, you know, holdouts. And I, I he wants to go to the ABA. I, I, there's, there's, a, there's always a lot going on with, um, with Will Chamberlain, as far as his, his issues with the teams that he's playing for. So, um, they have a, Earl Monroe has a really good series. He had been kind of outplayed the previous year by Gail Goodrich, but he comes back and uh, has a much better series in 72, 73 that, like I said, the Knicks win in five God
1: should mention though. It's a five game series, but every game is pretty close. Game one, the Lakers win by three game two. It's the Knicks by four. The series goes back to New York game three. It's the Knicks by four game five or excuse me, game four. It's the Knicks by five. And then game five is the one that's the closest to a blowout. And it's still a single point. You know, it's the widest margin of victory and it's still a nine point game or victory. So, you know, certainly a shorter series than the. And I guess in my head, I always just because you hear so much more about 70. I guess in my head, I always just assumed this was a seven game series as well. And then you find out that no, it was only five games.
0: It was Willis wins MVP, I think partially because of some of the work that he does on Will Chamberlain. There's sort of an understanding that, first of all, maybe Clyde should have shared the award with Willis. But I think there was probably still that bias towards centers a little bit in those days. Frazier Bradley leads the team in scoring in the finals with 18.6 Frazier 16.6 Reed 16.4 Monroe 16.0 and to 15.6 so it really is a a sort of a composite victory it's sort of the last of the you know it is a perfect encapsulation of what those Knicks were about every starter averages between 18.6 and 15.6 points per game. So they're all within three points of everybody else. And that's it. Um, There's, you know, Earl Monroe and Dean Memminger talk about how they don't really celebrate afterwards. They, they go back to their hotel room, they order room service, they watch some TV and they just kind of lay in bed. It's, It's talking about how, you know, how great they feel to have won a championship. So, it's the only title for Monroe. It's the only title for title for Lucas and Meminger and and, and Bibby and Phil Jackson, his only title as a player, as an active player. And I want to talk a, a little bit about the the few things that hap- happen happened in the aftermath because things kind of come crashing down really quickly, but it is the last night you know, 3000 miles away the last night of a magical era in New York, Nixon in, in New York sports history.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'd like to talk a little about some of the, the reunions and stuff like that, but just from a, just to do it very briefly, it is pretty much over after that the next year, 73, 74, they're still good. They get to the Eastern conference finals and lose to, I guess that would have been Boston, right? By the next year, Seventy they're under 500 they still make the playoffs but they lose in the first round and then they are out of the playoffs for a couple of years and it's really not until patrick ewing that the team is is back on any kind of uh you know prominent position in the nba and in new york sports
0: early the next season willis reed Tears some cartilage in his, I believe, in his right knee. He either playing in the Lakers early November and he feels uh, something snap or tear in his right knee, ends up missing basically all of the 73 74 season. I think he plays, you know, something like another 12 games in that entire series. Let me just verify real quick here. So Willis gets gets injured in in early 73 early in the 73 74 season i should say manages to play in only 19 games in that playoffs you and are uh, in that season i should say comes back for the playoffs but he's only averaging about 10 11 minutes a game by that point and then sits out 74 75 season and by that point he decides to hang it up the Knicks Um, debusher going into the 73 74 season debusher announces that it will be his last season because he is about to um, the following year become the the team president or the general manager of the Nets uh, still in the ABA actually serves as commissioner of the ABA for a year and helps to negotiate the merger with the NBA and Pretty soon, uh, you know, Bradley retires to begin his political career. The Busher's gone. They trade Clyde Frazier to Cleveland eventually, and then it, eventually it's just Monroe who's there, and Monroe who was not even on the '70 team, and that's kind of it. And they basically they have a couple bright spots in the '80s um, with the Bernard King years, but they really don't start to turn, start to turn it around in any meaningful way until the late eighties, early nineties time period, um, you know, in, in the Riley years and maybe a little bit before that. So it is a, a very steep decline after 1973.
1: And that Clyde, I can't decide. I think it would be weirder to see, you know, it would be worse to see Clyde in, you know, cause they, at least once a year, certainly whenever the Knicks play the Cavaliers in the regular season, They played them in the playoffs a few, you know, in the first round this year, whenever the games are on MSG and the Knicks are playing the Cavs, they'll, they'll, and Clyde Frazier, who's still the Knicks color guy, primarily they'll show the picture. The famous one is him in the, it's the mid seventies Cavaliers. So it's like red with yellow numbers, but then like the shoulders have like yellow and white stripes. And then there's a different Jersey where it's yellow with that same weird pattern. It's very jarring. I think seeing him in any uniform would be jarring and obviously it would be weirder like in a bad way to see him in a Celtics uniform or a Lakers uniform but just something so like jarring about like oh there's Clyde Frazier now in his bright yellow and red Cleveland Cavaliers jersey um and he you know I don't think he was very bummed to be there and uh you know, certainly was it was. It's like Tom Seaver from the Mets. You know what I mean? Didn't really get you anything. It wouldn't have probably hurt you to have him finish his career on bad teams anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: And then the only other thing that I would mention that I came across, which I thought was interesting, was that the Indiana Pacers, who were the champions of the ABA and were the the dynasty of the ABA, had challenged the Knicks to sort of a uh, a postseason game. I think it was just would have just been like a one game type of thing. They wanted to play an NBA versus ABA champions game to determine who the real champion of professional basketball was. And, you know, it's funny because when I first saw that, I thought, well, that was just kind of a silly idea. But if you look at other sports and how these leagues sort of achieved parity with the existing older league that type of game was how they did it. The AFL challenging the NFL. That was the beginning of the Super Bowl. And then even if you go back to baseball that, you know, when the American League first came in in 1901, their big goal was to achieve parity with the National League. And that's what happened with the World Series starting a couple years later in 1903. So not the craziest idea for the Pacers to have.
1: Yeah, I believe the quote there, and I can't find the exact quote, but the proper response to that is that uh, we're not obligated to play postseason tournaments against the champions of a minor league, as John Joseph McGraw said in (laughs) 19.
0: Another New Yorker.
1: Yes, Uh, with Baltimore ties. Um, But uh, yes, that would have been my quote in that regard.
0: So you said you want to talk a little bit maybe about the reunions and a little bit of the legacy. Cause they just, they just had a reunion like two months ago for, as a matter of fact.
1: Yeah. So, and it's interesting because sometimes they all get lumped together, you know, cause there's two teams in four years and a lot of the guys were on both, but just actually this past February, they had a, uh, a re- It was actually, I was in DC or in Maryland staying with you. So I didn't see it live, but that was, they played the Pelicans on a Saturday night and, um, this was uh eight of the players were there, Dean Memminger and uh I believe Dave DeBusher, who's passed away a long time ago. Meminger was recently like, like in the last few years, had family members there. Um Willis Reed, who has since passed away, had like a pre-recorded video message. Yeah, so it was Barnett Bradley Monroe Jerry Lucas Henry Bibber Bibby Walt Frazier there Phil Jackson did not go and I feel there's a part of me that does feel bad about that because Phil Jackson even when he was the coach of the Bulls and then the coach of the Lakers always spoke very fondly of his time as a player with the Knicks there is a he obviously he takes over as sort of president of the Knicks you know whatever year it was is Equal parts disinterested and bad at it gets fired. Fans are very happy. He gets fired. Things are better now, which is not saying much, but they are better. And he now feels like he can't show up to something like this. And there's a part of me that feels bad about that. He'll survive. Don't get me wrong. But you know what I mean?
0: Well, and again, we're we're digressing a little bit here, but I never understood why It was so important.
1: Clyde on the TV at the game, by the way.
0: (laughs) I I saw him a minute ago, too, when I looked over there. So, yeah, he's still us. Hey, and that's something else you want to tell you. You Talk about legacy. Talk about 50 years after he won a championship. The guy's still an active part of the Knicks, and he still does games. He still travels to games. He doesn't just do home games, I don't think. He may not travel to every game, but.
1: No, he does. He does a lot of them. There'll be times where he's gone for like a week and it's usually he he's got a place in I think St. Bart's St. Croix St. Croix St. Bart's I think is, is Lauren Michaels. It's another New York sort of longtime celebrity. So he's there's games or you'll see like, Oh, it's a, it's a Wednesday night in Minnesota and maybe he's not there, but I would say he probably does 50 or more games a year. So he does, you know, a lot of them.
0: And you have to figure he's an older guy, obviously they haven't been particularly relevant in almost 25 years. They had, they were just bad for so long in the 21st century. And then you factor in COVID the fact that this guy is still out doing games now, after all the reasons he could have just sort of quietly bowed out. It's really just kind of crazy.
1: It's also crazy. He, You know, cause James Dolan's not a guy who's, all that in you know, he wouldn't be like, Oh, it's surprising that after all these years, he didn't, you know, James Dolan didn't get mad at him for saying something about the team. And suddenly they're in a tiff and he's, you know, and you're right. The fact that the guy sat through this many years, of bad basketball, just, just the act of watching it. You know what I mean? Um, the Knicks are on quite a run at the moment. Now they're up 18. So your, your forecast of doom seems to have been a little, uh, a little premature. Um, yeah. I but, don't think
0: uh, I was the one who forecasted the doom, but that's okay.
1: Um, Was that Larry, the dancing guy? Um, Harry. Yeah. So on that, on that quote, the, the during that reunion, the quote from Frazier, is he said, you know, we had a veteran team. We understood the nuances of having New York on our chest. We knew the high expectation, but we relished those expectations because we knew we lived in the greatest city in the world. The thing with those Knicks teams. And obviously, I'm you know, this this 73 team was 13 years before I was born, so I missed him by at least 20 years. It's not like I missed him a lot. Um if you almost have to be, what would you figure to, to if you were 12 in 1973 or even 10 in 1973. So you got to be close to 60 years old to have much firsthand knowledge of these T te- or firsthand memory of these teams at this point. Yeah. Um, and then when you factor in that games, you know, there was a lot less TV. There was more TV for the Knicks than there probably was for most teams back then, but there was, you know, not as much TV. I, I, this will make hopefully this makes sense to you, and I think other people will understand it. Game one of the Knicks-Cavs, their first playoff game this year. MSG does some really cool commercials, and I'm watching the games with my friend, and they went to a commercial of this guy who's got like a mural of Anthony Mason in, our, in his house. And I, I'm not at the moment trying to disrespect Anthony Mason because he's passed on, but I was kind of saying to my friends like, there's something a little sad about the fact that. This 90s Knicks team that we all revere or that, you know, Knicks fans of us of our generation love was basically Patrick Ewing and a bunch of guys who got into fights. Charles Oakley Oakley was a good player, you know, and, and sometimes very good. But like and I love John Starks, but like the fact that they're the guys that people our age have murals of in their house how many guys on the equivalent of Anthony Mason do you think the Celtics have had over the years that nobody really remembers? You know what I Mm -hmm. mean? Yeah. So it's like, sometimes people conflate. They're like, oh yeah, those Knicks teams in the seventies. And then again in the nineties. And it's like, we do need to stop for a minute and say, it's not quite the same. That team got to three finals. They won two. They beat that Celtics team. They beat the bucks. They beat, um, they beat Elgin West
0: and Wilt in the finals, They
1: beat the Lakers. They played the bullets a bunch of times. And they are a team that as much as anything pre magic bird era in the NBA, especially pre magic bird era that doesn't involve the Celtics. They've stood the test of time for people who know what they're talking about with basketball.
0: Well, and just if you think about it, I mean, how many teams are there with even three guys on the, you know, I mean, those Laker dynasties have three guys, you know, the the magic Kareem worthy. That's three guys from the 75 greatest players in NBA history. The, the um, I mean, I guess some of those Celtics teams, I guess maybe you could have Kuzi, Russell, Sam Jones, Havlicek, you know, you might have like one year where there were five. That 73 Knicks team has six guys, six guys who were on, or no, maybe it's just five. It, it's DeBusher, Reed, Frazier, Monroe, and Lucas. Okay. Five guys. And then Bill Bradley's also in the Hall of Fame. So six Hall of Famers and five guys, and also five guys who all contributed. This isn't Robert Parrish sitting at the end of the bench for the 96 Bulls. This is five guys who were all contributors to the team. So that's pretty unique by just by any sport, but, you know, particularly by NBA standards, it is in many ways, a collection of talent that has not really been matched in the NBA in its whole history. Yeah. I mean, you
1: know, you, and uh, the, the thing I, and I've said this before more when I've talked about teams like the 70s Steelers, but it, it applies to some of the older teams, Where I feel like there's a little Hall of Fame inflation going on where sometimes it's like, well, he was on a team that won, you know, all these championships. So, like, you know, guys who maybe wouldn't have gotten in otherwise get in and then you reverse engineer it the other way and go, oh, well, of course, this team was so great. Look at all the Hall of Famers they had. There's no person on that 73 Knicks teams that's a Hall of Famer that anybody even attempts to argue is not a Hall of Famer.
0: Well, I don't know that anybody ever does that in the basketball Hall of Fame anyway, because they basically count everything from the first time the kid was three years old and first shot a basketball. The one who I don't think necessarily had a Hall of Fame NBA career is Bradley, and I think he's partially in for sort of what he did at Princeton. But, yeah, absolutely. It's not as if there's anybody who it's like, oh, well, they're just there because they, you know, they they were along for the ride. I don't want to end this on a sour note, but I sort of digress from my point about Phil for a minute. I just never understood what anybody thought it would accomplish to bring Phil Jackson to the Knicks as an executive in 2013 or whatever it is that they did it, given the fact that he had never been an executive. He was old. It was almost like they had to be able to say that at some point Phil Jackson was an employee of the Knicks because they'd been trying to get him to come coach for so long. And that was like just by doing it, it was some way to check some sort of strange box and, you know, whatever. And it was maybe like, okay, we, we can't bring any big players in. So we'll bring Phil Jackson back. But a- as much of a jerk as Phil Jackson can be, it is sort of a shame that his Knicks legacy is tarnished by all of that.
1: And that's what I mean. You know, he's not a central guide of the 73 Knicks story, but he he played, he was in the rotation. He's, you know, like I said, I feel bad that, you know, because he was at whatever it was. It might have been the 70 team five years ago, although no, because that would have been after his presidency as well. But there was some reunion for some team. Maybe it was 40 years of the 73 team. I think that's probably what it was 10 years ago. And he was there and he got cheers. I think that was right before he got hired as the Knicks uh, mm-hmm. in the front office. Um, He got hired. You know, he's there. He gets cheered. I think it means a lot to him. And now, you know, he'll probably never show his face there again. And I'm not. Look, he'll survive. He's got plenty of, you know, the accolades he so richly deserves. He'll be fine. But, you know, there's a little part of me that's like, yeah, it's sad we had to do that. You know what I mean?
0: Agreed. Agreed. But it was a great team. It was a great story. And and I really just wanted to shine some light on The lesser talked about of the of the two nick championship teams from the early 70s Mm -hmm. well i thought it was a good episode um you know we hadn't done a straight basketball episode in a while so i thought this was a good pick for for playoff time so maybe and maybe the knicks will even somehow still be in it by the time this posts in a couple of weeks towards the end of may but um (laughs) until then i'm dan newman and i'm andrew newman goodbye old sports